All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and open it up to Malachi chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's some in the chairs there around you. And uh, if you're using that Bible there in the chairs around you, it's page 628. Page 628. Um, before we get there, um, I know this is going to seem like an odd place to say this, but I, this, is, this is the part of the service that gets posted online. So I want to just take a moment, and if you are watching at home and you have not been able to come back yet, um, because of concern for safety or someone else's safety. I just wanted to say to you that we miss you and I, uh, we understand uh, and want you to know that whenever you're ready to come back, whenever it feels safe, uh, that we're ready to welcome you back. But until then, uh, let us know if there's anything that we can do. And for those of you that may not have come back yet, and it may not be for concern for safety, we miss you too. And we look forward to welcoming you back uh, when you do return. All right. All right, so uh, Malachi, uh, the last, last sermon we will have in the Old Testament uh, as we transition into the New Testament as we're following the F260 reading plan. And so a lot of things starting to, to come to culmination as we get to uh, the book of Malachi and then next week head into John chapter 1. And so um, just a quick recap, we've seen God uh, bring creation into existence. We've seen him, and by the way, my wife probably just thought, oh, he's starting at the beginning. Here we go. No, but a quick recap, he brings everything into creation, he creates Adam and Eve, and the goal was Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, go and fill and represent me across the earth, take the conditions of Eden that you're experiencing here, and go and multiply, and it was supposed to be God's kingdom uh, expanding across all of the rest of creation. Of course, you know how that ended, and so uh, then God, um, then the, there's that moment in Genesis 11 where people start to congregate together and think, we can do this better than God, and so God separates them, and out of that separation, he then pulls one man, Abraham, and he says, I'm not done with humanity, but I'm going to work through this man, and through this man and his family and his descendants, I'm going to bring about the promises uh, that I have extended to humanity. And so you see that then tracking as the promise gets passed uh, down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And you see that God sends the, the, the people into Exodus, uh, into Egypt in the book of Exodus. They're in slavery, but some 400 years later, God brings them out, makes a promise to them in Exodus 19. It's like God's wedding himself to this people. We see like a marriage ceremony take place at Mount Sinai where he says, look, I'm I'm your God. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And he gives them this instruction. I'm bringing you to the land that I've given to Abraham, the land that's yours. But when you get in that land and he gives them the list, if you obey me, here's the blessings that you'll receive. If you disobey me, here's the curses that you receive. And so then we see that playing out, right? We see that when the people of God, the, the nation of Israel disobey God, they come under the rulership of other nations. They have famines in the land. Um, they, their, their, their livestock die or there's diseases that hit them. There's, there's things that just take place. But then when they repent and return to the Lord, we see the blessings come in. So we see this interplay taking place as the people continue to deteriorate and continue to pursue other gods, we see God raising up prophets, people who will come and speak on behalf of God to the people. And they will tell the people, hey, God is going to bring judgment upon you because you're violating his law. You're breaking the covenant. But if you return, the prophets will say to these people, if you return, who knows if God is going to relent or not, but you've got to repent, right? And so you constantly see these prophets calling the people back, calling the people back. Sometimes they respond, sometimes they don't. Ultimately, what we've seen in the last several weeks is because they continue to rebel, God says, now you're going away into captivity. And you see that in two phases, largely speaking, the, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that split because there was a civil war, they get taken away by Assyria in the 700s B.C., 
Then the southern kingdom, the two tribes, they finally get taken away uh, in the 500s BC by Babylon, where they've stayed and where we've been the last couple weeks. But then you start to see that they've, they've reached their time in Babylon in captivity where God says, you're going to be there 70 years, but then I'm going to bring you out. And so we see people like Ezra come back and the temple's rebuilt. We see people like Nehemiah, who Russ covered the last two weeks, who come back and they're, they're building the wall around the city. Malachi falls right in that time frame. This prophet Malachi falls right in that time frame. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's somewhere after the temple's been rebuilt, maybe around when the walls are being built, maybe slightly after, right? We're talking around somewhere in the, the, uh, the 400s BC, maybe the, the early 300s BC, that time frame. And I give you that number because this is about 400 years before the New Testament picks up. Malachi is the last prophet of God that we have recorded speaking to the people on behalf of God. And after he speaks, now you and I, we turn a page and we're all of a sudden in Matthew, the New Testament, the Gospels. That's a 400-year page turn right there. Okay, that's important to know. But what was going on before that page turn? See, Malachi writes to a group of people who have been living back in Jerusalem. They've got their temple, their center of their place of worship, right? They, they've possibly got the walls built at this point, and they're living in the, in the, in the land, and, and they've fallen back into some bad routines, some bad habits. And so the book of Malachi, it's, it's structured very neatly in that it's kind of like a court case. It's kind of like a court case where accusations are brought, then there's a, there's a response to the accusation, and then, and then, the, 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 then God, who's bringing the accusation, says, nope, here's how it is. Here's the evidence. And you've got, I believe it's six of those, and we're going to look at the, the fourth one today. But it's things like where, where the people will complain, and, 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 they'll, and they'll say, God, you don't love us as special people like you say you do. And God will answer that. Or, or God, will, God will say to people, your priests are not honoring me. And the people will say back, well, how are we not honoring you? And then he'll tell them, right? Or it's, it's things like um, later on after the section we're going to look at in chapter 2, verse 17, there's that one that if you probably ever heard a sermon from Malachi, it's been the um, bring, bring the, the tithes to the storehouse and don't rob God type of, pre, uh, of, of sermon, right? It's usually a tithing sermon. That comes from the, the next section of Malachi where God says, you're robbing God. How are we robbing God? Because you do this or you don't do this. That's the structure of Malachi. And as you read through it, if you pay attention to when those questions show up, God says, you're doing this. How are we doing this? Here's how. You know you've started the next indictment. You've started the next accusation, the next section of that book. Today, the section we're going to look at starts in, in chapter 2, verse 17, and we're just going to look at through chapter 3, verse 5. And it's a section where God's going to deal with injustice. Now, I said that to somebody yesterday. They asked me what I was preaching on, and that's always a hard question because, you know, I don't want to give you my full sermon when you ask me that, and you're not asking for my full sermon when you ask me that. And so sometimes I'll default and I'll say, oh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, as if, you know, a lot of people would know exactly where that is. I wouldn't. Like, if, if, if some of you come up to me, you know, you say, like, I was reading in Ezra chapter 7 the other day, and chapter 7, verse 14, and then you just start talking about how the Lord spoke to you. I'm going, I don't know what Ezra 7, 14 says. 
Like, I'm going to go look it up afterwards, you know, unless it's one of those popular verses. I'm, I'm like many of you. I'm not going to be able to just recall any random scripture that you bring to mind. So, so I, I gave that answer, and then I thought, man, how do I sum this up? Because, by the way, that's, that's, a, that's a good exercise for public speaking in general is can you sum up what you're going to say in one complete sentence? If you can't, you're not ready. And I said, I'm going to talk about justice tomorrow and God's response to justice. And you know what the response was? Well, that's relevant, isn't it? It is. I mean, and, 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 and here's the thing about the scriptures. So the scriptures are always relevant. Why? That's, that's why the book of Hebrews and the New Testament will say the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and if that scripture refers to the written word of God, then it's saying, man, it's always applicable. It, it, it's timeless. And so Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. Let's take a look how, how it starts. Here's where we're going this morning. If you long for justice... I think at some point we all do. Either we have an experience of injustice or, or we see injustice and then we start to long for justice or, or maybe we see what's going on around and we, we long for justice. If you long for justice, look to the gospel. And so look with me at, at chapter 2, verse 17. Starting the fourth indictment, God says this, well, God through Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is God, the God of justice? And so here's the, here's the indictment that God brings to the people. He says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Now, let's just pause there, because that might be strange language. To talk about God the creator of all things, being wearied. Wouldn't that make him not God if he's wearied? I mean, you think about it and you, and you read that and you think, well, when I get wearied, I'm not able to do things. I have limitations. That's why I'm wearied. And then you translate that to, does God have limitations? It's important to know that when you read language like this that describes God, you have wearied me. There's, there's, there's at least two things happening. One, they're communicating in human terms something that we would understand so that we can understand something about God. And so they use human descriptions that help us to understand something about God. But the other thing you need to know is that when, when it's used like this, human descriptions of God, uh, like he's weary God, you can't read it through the lens of your experience of being wearied. Because when you and I get wearied, and, and, and the context here would be like, just imagine your kid asking you that they want something over and over again, and they're wearing you down, and you're wearied by them, right? Well, either you give in, or you blow up, or I don't know what you do, but you know, those are two options that I usually turn to, right? That's not the Lord. Right? And so what we read is, is we read this, the Lord is wearied, and we have to understand that it's in the context of his response to sin. And so he's being described as being wearied, but that does not mean he's limited. Or that he, it even doesn't mean that he's controlled by his motions. Like today, if he's wearied, he's not going to act because he's too tired. But tomorrow, if he feels energetic enough because he got enough coffee, then he's going to, it's not like that or Coke, or Dr. Pepper, for you non-coffee drinkers, right? That's not the Lord. He's not limited. But this human language is helping us to understand God's response to sin in this situation. He's tired of seeing it. He's tired of hearing about it. In fact, he's tired of being questioned. 
He's tired of having his character called into question. Because here's, here's what he says. Well, you've wearied the Lord. And they say, well, how have we wearied the Lord? That's a dangerous question to ask. When God says to you, you've wearied me, well, God, how have I done that? And, I, and, I, and there's, there's question as to whether they're asking in an, in an innocent way, like, well, how have we done that? Because we want to we fix that. Versus, how have we done that? And you know the difference, right? Because if your kid did the same thing to you, there's two different tones there, and it would elicit two different responses, right? Mom, how did I, how did I do that? I didn't mean to do that. Oh, honey, well, let me, no. How did I do that? That's probably what's going on here because as you read through the book of Malachi, that's the tone that you start to pick up on. How have we wearied him? He says, because everyone, you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. You know what they're doing there? They're taking sin, they're taking evil, and they're calling it good. In fact, they're even going further than that, and, they says, and, you're, and you're saying it's good in the sight of the Lord. God is okay with this. God approves of this. He says, I'm wearied by you doing this. Because the people had continued to worship the Lord. But they had started to let things creep in. Other practices that were associated with worshiping other gods. And maybe at times they would even um, give those other actions of worshiping other gods. And they would say, but we're doing that for the Lord and the Lord's okay with that. This is how we worship him. And so they're taking evil, they're taking sin, and they're calling it good. I am so glad we don't have that problem today. I'm so glad that we've finally gotten over that, where we all the time always identify sin as sin, call it sin, and are quick to repent, and never slap the, names, the Lord's name on our sin. I'm so glad that we never do that. Except when we choose to live our lives in blatantly sinful ways, and then we relabel it. And we say, oh, just taking two easy targets for the moment, we say, oh, that's love. Who, who are you or who am I to question who I fall in love with? Or we say, it's my choice, my body, my choice. Now, those are two very easy ones to throw out to a conservative Christian group. Right? We'd all, most of us in, in this room, or most of you, if you're watching, you would go, mm, okay, yeah, I, I get it. And right on board with that. Yeah, people need to stop calling that sin. But what about if we go a little further and we say, uh, when I hold on to bitterness or anger against a person who's wronged me, but I justify it because I was not in the wrong, they were. Okay? Or what if I say, you know what? Yeah, I, I know I overindulged in that food or that drink or, 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 or that, that activity, but the Lord wants me to be happy. And I'm, I was happy. And we slapped the Lord's name on something that was gluttonous or lacked self-control. Okay, now it doesn't matter if you're conservative or not. That's gonna hit you, right? See, we do this. We, we say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And so we, we start to call things that are evil and sin and we rename them. And we rename them things that are acceptable and things that, that maybe soften the blow. And so we do this and listen, man, I, I've grown up in the church long enough. I do this and we, we don't call sin, sin. Instead, what do we typically say about it? I'm struggling with. Because struggling sounds a little bit easier, a little bit more acceptable. If I were to confess to you that I have sinned or I'm participating in sin, the way I know that I can soften that is say, I, I struggle with. And then somehow we've lessened that and we don't call it sin anymore. It's a struggle. 
It makes me human. It's sin. And until we identify sin as sin and see it the way the Lord sees it, we're not going to be repenting. He says, so you've done that. And he goes further. He says, maybe you're not doing that, but some of you are doing this where you're asking, where is the God of justice? God, where are you? Because I expected you to act by now. I mean, don't you see what's happening, God, in the United States? God, don't you see what's happening in this country that is being tormented by a dictator? God, don't you see what's happening when all these people are being killed? God, don't you see what's happening with the human trafficking situation that's taking place all across the world that nobody's paying attention to? God, don't you see it? Where are you, God? Are you just? Are you real? Are you, are you even there? And here's the problem. That's the question they're asking. God, where are you? Because they're seeing injustice around them just like we see injustice around them. It's, it's not changed. And when you don't see God as just, when you don't believe God is just, what do you do? You start to look for justice in different ways and in different places. And so you seek out justice because we all long for it. We all long for justice. But, but the question is, what's your standard that you're measuring justice off of, right? Because if you remove God from the picture, who is the standard of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's, what's just, but you take him out of the picture, now what's just is up to me, it's up to you, it's up to a culture, it's up to a group of people. So the, the target moves, that's a problem, right? But then you start to look for ways to find justice. So you look to a political party, or you look to a political system, or a particular platform, or you look to a particular person, a figure, someone who's going to step in and fix all of this. And maybe if you're a good church-going person, you know you can't go as far as saying they're going to be our Savior, but maybe you act like they're going to be our Savior. And you start to look for justice. Or maybe you say, we just need to strengthen our government, let that government start to, to be a little bit more dominant in this case. Or the government's too dominant, and we need that government to back off a little bit. Where is the God of justice? See, when you don't see God as just, you still look for justice. You still long for justice. But you look for it in other places, in other people, and they will never satisfy your longing for justice. So that's the indictment. How does God respond to these questions of his character? How does God respond to the injustice where he's got people who are calling evil good and even saying God delights in evil? How does God respond? Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's God's response. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's God's response. Now, he's going to unpack that. But God's response to God, where are you? Where is this God of justice? And God's response to you're all doing evil and calling it good is, watch out, I'm sending my messenger. I'm sending my messenger. He's going to come and he's going to prepare the way for me. Wait a minute. What do you mean prepare the way for me? Oh, oh, because, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I'm coming. Now, do you remember what the people of Israel had, had gotten used to before they went into captivity? The presence of God dwelling in the temple. 
Guess who's not been dwelling in the temple since they've been back? Guess whose presence has not been physically, supernaturally among them as he had been before they went into captivity? The Lord. And so he says, I'm sending my messenger. He's going to come. He's going to prepare the way for me. And then I'm coming. The Lord's coming. And I'm going to come to his, he's going to come to his temple. And then the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, that's ironic, the messenger of the covenant. What covenant are we talking about? He's going to be talking about this new covenant that's coming. The new covenant that God's going to bring. The one that he's talked about in Jeremiah. The one that he's talked about in Ezekiel where he says, there's going to be a day where I'm going to start a new covenant with you. And I'm going to give my spirit to you. And I'm going to wash you clean. And I'm, I'm going to write the law in your hearts. And you're going to obey me. Now the messenger of the covenant's coming. And it's in him you delight. That's interesting because if you're doing injustice, if you're practicing sin, you're doing evil, you don't delight in the Lord. But you might say you do. There's the irony. I'm coming. The God whom you say you delight in, I'm coming to my temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's God's response to, are you there, God? Are you even a God of justice? What's he going to do when he gets here? Let's keep reading verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Oh, oh. That doesn't sound very good, doesn't it? So I'm coming. The Lord's coming. There's going to be a messenger. He's going to prepare the way for me. The Lord's coming to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? You see, here's the thing. We cry out for justice. God, where are you? Why don't you act? Why don't you act justly now? And we always say that within our focus, something that's going on somewhere else with someone else in someone else's life. And you want to see justice take place in that situation or in their life or for that person. But are you ready for justice to take place in your life? Because when the Lord comes in justice, he comes in justice for all. He does not come in justice for just some. You see, we are so quick to call on God to be just. And we're always looking outward, but we're never looking inward. Am I ready for that day? Am I ready? If I'm calling out for justice, am I ready to stand before the Lord? Because Malachi says, who can endure that day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? See, it's not going to be a great day for many people. It's not going to be a day where, where people can stand proudly before the Lord. He says he's going to be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Refiner's fire, you know, like back, back then, the way they would separate uh, precious metal, take silver, for instance, they would have to remove the dross. So they would heat it up. The dross would come up to the surface. They would scoop it off or blow it off, and then they'd do that process again. The impurities would come up to the surface, scoop it off or blow it off. Fuller soap or a launderer. You're washing the clothes. You're trying to get the oils out. You're trying to get the stains out. You're separating the impure from the pure. You're taking what doesn't belong, and you're separating it from what does belong. When, when the messenger comes, the messenger of the covenant, when God comes to his temple, he's going to be like a refiner's fire, separating what's pure, what belongs, from what's impure, what doesn't belong. What's a stain from what's not. 
Keep going in verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So now he's talking about um, the purifying of a group of people. Now, the sons of Levi, the tribe of Levi, it's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and so this is one of those tribes of Israel, but they didn't have land. The, the, the people of Levi were the priests among the Israelites, and they were scattered out among the tribes so, so that they could serve as priests and workers in the temple among the people. And now, interesting though, God says, I'm going to purify them. Because one of the, the indictments that he's had in Malachi is against the priests who don't honor him. The very people who are supposed to represent God to the people and teach the people, he's saying, they don't honor me. They're corrupt. I'm going to purify them. The result is going to be their righteousness is, is going to come from them. Their offerings will be righteous. Now, when you fast forward to the New Testament, there's another group of people who are called the kingdom of priests. The church. The people of God who are in Christ are called a kingdom of priests because we in Christ, we represent the Lord to all around us. We are people who are walking. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. You are a walking temple of God. The presence of God dwelling in you all the places that you go. You are a mediator. You are a representative of God among all who you interact with. And he's going to purify his people, the priests. We go on. Verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in, in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The day the Lord is going to come, the messenger is going to prepare the way. The Lord's going to come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant is coming. He says it's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be a day of refinement for some, a day of judgment for others. What's the difference? Refinement for those who belong to the Lord. Separating the pure from the impure. Judgment for those who do not fear the Lord, which is a way in the Old Testament of speaking about those who do not trust him, who do not live in accordance with his standards, who do not belong to him, who are not part of the covenant people. Those who reject God. Now he gives this list. Sorcerers. People who practice magic. Black magic, dark magic, witchcraft, things like that. Even if they would be quote unquote good witches, white witches. That was not terminology back then, but today it is. Wiccans. Against the adulterers. Those who are unfaithful in their marriage. Against those who swear falsely. Liars people who bear false witness, who accuse someone of doing something even though it's not true. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, so those who are not fair and just in paying those who work for them. Uh, slave labor. The widow and the fatherless, vulnerable people. The widow and the orphan. People who had no one to care for them, no rights, and then people would take advantage of them. 
okay, human trafficking today, against those who, who thrust aside the sojourner, someone traveling through your land. See, it was a big deal. You offered hospitality to people. And when the, excuse me just a moment. It's not a COVID cough. That is, it's, you just can't cough in public anymore. Talking over the noise, cough. All right. All right, so against those who thrust aside the sojourner, hospitality. Hospitality wasn't like, I'm going to invite my friends over and spread a nice meal for you. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not really what it was. Hospitality was welcoming in people who are passing through, people who don't belong to your group of people, people who are travelers, and welcoming them in. And to eat a meal with them was a very intimate thing. See, we think about hospitality and we think about having one another over, and that's certainly an aspect, but really, we call that fellowship. See, hospitality is, I'm inviting you into my home, into my life, even though maybe we're not currently part of the same friend circle, part of the same group, part of the same church. Maybe you're not even a believer. Hospitality is extending that, that, that welcome out. And he says, so the people who thrust aside those, the, the sojourner and those who do not fear me, catch all. These are the type of people the Lord is coming for in judgment. Now, whenever you see a list like this, and it comes up in the New Testament too, and it gets so severely abused. And many people, some of you perhaps, have been Bible-thumped with them, okay? Because you look at these and you go, well, I, I, I'm a believer in Christ. I've trusted in Christ. But, but what, happens if I, what happens if I swear falsely? What happens if I do the Ouija board? I did that when I was in fifth grade. Does that, does that disqualify me? What, what if I was unfaithful? And then what about Jesus? Jesus' standard for adulterers is not just physically cheating on my husband or wife, but, but looking at anyone in lust. What, what if I have a pornography addiction? What, what if, what if, what if I, at some point in my life I, I wasn't a good boss? I did not. I did not treat them fairly. What if, what if um, there's been people that are vulnerable around me and I didn't look after them? What if? These lists are typically thrown out in the scripture as characterizing people. These are things that characterize these people. They are adulterers. They, are, they swear falsely. It's not necessarily the, I did that once in my life. Right? So the same thing comes with the New Testament. I'm thinking 1 Corinthians 6 is a great example where people Bible thump and they say these type of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then you go up to someone and say, you cheated on your wife one time 20 years ago? You ain't, ain't going to get in the kingdom of God. No, this is what characterizes people. And the reason it characterizes them is because they do not fear the Lord. A person who does not fear the Lord does not have the Spirit of God in them. New Testament language for that would be a person who is not trusted in Christ does not have the Spirit of God in them. Therefore, their life is not going to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, but instead by, by sinful flesh. And the things that will characterize a person who does not belong to the Lord will be things like this. But a person who belongs to the Lord, their life should be characterized by the opposite of those things by faithfulness in their marriage, regardless of, of, of how bad it is or what happens to them, by always speaking the truth in love, by watching uh, out for those who are working for you and, and not treating people like property, right? Um, by watching out for the, 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 the vulnerable in society. 
by watching out for people who maybe aren't in your circles and welcoming them in. That's the kind of things that characterize someone who has been given new life, who's been made spiritually alive in Christ and the Spirit is working and growing and producing in them the fruit of the Spirit. And so what Malachi is, or God is saying to Malachi is that day who can stand, for some it's a day of refinement, for others it's a day of judgment. And for judgment it's for those who do not belong to the Lord. Now, you might be asking yourself, I said if you long for justice, look to the gospel. Why is this God's answer to injustice? I'm going to come. I'm going to send my messenger. Why is this God's answer? And why is it better than anything we would come up with on our own? Because in God coming, the messenger, you fast forward, and we're going to see this next week in John 1. The messenger that comes, we find out, is John the Baptist, who comes and prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus and John's message was repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's coming. And Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus lives this life of perfect obedience to the Lord. And then he goes and he dies an unjust death. Does God know anything about injustice? He experienced it. Then he rises three days later. And then those who trust in him Those who trust in Christ come under the new covenant, the covenant that he, the messenger of the covenant, brings. And so those who come into the new covenant have sins forgiven. They are washed clean. They are made new. They're given the spirit of God, made into a temple of God, because everywhere you go, you have the presence of God. The sin problem is dealt with in the coming of Christ in his death and his resurrection. And at the root of all injustice is sin. You cannot legislate away sin. There's no amount of laws that can be put into place that will rid this world or a person of sin. There's no amount of sentencing, no terms in prison or jail that will rid a person of the sin that impacts and infects every single person. You can't do that. It doesn't fix the problem. You can't strengthen a government and dominate a people. You can't lessen a government and empower a people and do away with the sin problem, which is at the root of all injustice. It will not work. Why is it better when God says, I'm coming? Because when he came in the person of Christ, he dealt with the sin problem. He defeated sin in the death of Christ when he rose from the dead. And so now those who trust in Christ become free from sin. Now you still deal with it in this life, but you have the, the freedom away from it. It does not dominate you. It does not condemn you. You will not stand before the Lord one day if you are in Christ and he say to you, this is a day of judgment, of condemnation. Feel my wrath. You won't. Because in Christ, we are not destined for wrath. That's why it's better. Because God deals with the root of the problem. Now, what the Old Testament prophets could not see that Jesus helps us to understand and the New Testament writers help us to understand is that Jesus' first coming and his second coming are separate. See, the Old Testament prophets didn't have a concept for that. 
They didn't see the first coming and a second coming. They saw the coming and the day of the Lord. And what we find out as we get into the New Testament is the day of the Lord begins when Christ shows up on the scene, but it's not complete until he returns. And that in-between time where we are currently living is a time of grace where people can trust in Christ and be brought into the family of God. But listen, we cry out for justice and we say, God, show up in justice now. But the moment he shows up, that window's closed. Are you ready for the justice that you cry out for? Are you longing for justice? Instead of longing for justice and looking to the government, longing for justice and looking to a political person or figure, instead of longing for justice and looking to some, some kind of uh, strength in government or uh, empowerment of people, instead look to the gospel. Because all of this comes together in the gospel because that's where the, the sin was dealt with and people can be set free. And when Christ does come back, we will be a people who stands before him. And yes, there's refinement. But listen, if you are a person who has experienced the, the arm of justice in this life, and you deserved it, and you're a believer in Christ, that is his refinement of you. That is his mercy for you. That is his love being shown as he's disciplining the children that he loves because God's love for us is so strong that he's not going to let us go down a path of destruction. And if you have experienced the arm of justice in this life and you don't belong to Christ, that is a wake-up call to you that there is a greater and more final judgment coming. And, and there is a need for you to respond to what God has done in Christ, to repent and believe in Christ and receive the life, forgiveness of sins that he provides based on his righteousness. That's why if you long for justice, the answer is found in the gospel. That's why our primary message as believers in Christ, as the church, capital C, in a world that is currently in upheaval with injustice is not for us to, to make our primary call or our primary focus on solving the injustice, but proclaiming the gospel and then letting that impact us so that we then act as people who have been changed by the gospel, who then intercede on behalf of the oppressed, who intercede on behalf of the vulnerable. That's where the motivation for that kind of intercession comes from. But when we pull the gospel out and we then look to trying to reform things apart from the gospel, it will never work. And as people who belong to Christ, we should not substitute our primary calling in the gospel with a calling in something else that may be good, but will not work apart from the gospel. Instead, the people of God who are changed by the gospel live out changed lives among the people you interact with. If you have the opportunity to be in government positions or in political positions, then you, you live that out in that sphere and you let the Lord work through you and in you and among you. But too many people get distracted and they lay the gospel aside and instead they pick up the calls for justice, which are good, but they do it apart from the gospel. It won't work, never. All right, so let's just let that settle on you for a moment as Jeff plays. Ask the Lord, what does he have for you today? What is he wanting to say to you today? How does he want you to respond?
God is good. And God is just. And He has come. And He is coming. And if you have been changed by the life that He gives in Christ, go from here and live as changed people wherever He places you. And do that for the glory of God. Amen. See you guys next week.